Coming up on Harvard Chan this week in health, the power of a family meal. It's really a time for family members to kind of slow down. I think in our busy lives, it's it's hard to find that time. So if we're able to just take some time out of our day, sit down with others and connect, I think that can be really, really valuable. A growing body of evidence shows that when families sit down for meals together, children and adolescents eat healthier. In this week's podcast, we'll explore new research on the impact of these meals and ways to make it easier for families to dine together. Hello and welcome to Harvard Chan This Week in Health. I'm Noah Levitt. For busy families, gathering together for a meal, whether it's breakfast or dinner, can be difficult. But a growing body of research shows that these meals together can have an important influence on the quality of food that children and teens eat. However, there's been less research on effective ways to encourage families to eat together more often. In this week's episode, we're speaking with the author of a new study that could help public health professionals target interventions at busy families. Catherine Walton is a research fellow at the Hospital for Sick Children in Toronto and a PhD student at the University of Guelph in Toronto. One of the co-authors of the study is Bryn Austin, who is a professor in the Department of Social and Behavioral Sciences here at the Harvard Chan School. The researchers found that when families sit down together for dinner, adolescents and young adults eat more fruits and veggies and consume fewer fast food and takeout items. Now, what's unique about this study is that Walton and her colleagues looked at the families participating in the meal, assessing how they communicated, managed schedules, and even bonded with children, something called family functioning. And they found that the benefits of family meals were seen regardless of how well or poorly a family functioned. I spoke to Walton via Skype about the findings of her study and how they could inform future initiatives to encourage families to eat together. I began our conversation by asking her to explain what existing research has shown about the benefits of family meals. We know that family meals have many, many benefits um, for both children and adolescents. When we think about dietary intake, we see higher intakes of fruits and vegetables, lower intakes of sugar, sweetened beverages like sodas, um, less takeout, less fast food. Um, but we also see higher um, well-being. We see lower rates of depression, um, substance abuse, and disordered eating. So the benefits of family meals are very broad. But what my team was interested in was that perhaps these benefits only exist for certain families. And so, you know, it may not be um, the best message to be promoting family meals broadly for everybody um, when perhaps the, the benefits may look different for different families. So that's kind of what brought us to this research because nobody had really looked at the general family in that um, that actually participates in the family meal. So what does that those what do those interactions look like um, for different families when they sit down together? Um, so that's really what inspired this research is to to understand do high and low functioning families benefit the same way. And so you you talked uh, you mentioned there uh, that you were looking at something called family functioning. So can you explain a little bit about um, what that is and then how you go about measuring that? Yeah, for sure. So family functioning is um, a measure of how well um, families 
problem solve, communicate and connect emotionally. Um, and so if we think about family meals, these are really important aspects um, of the meal. Um, you know, you're sitting down with um, other people, you, there is going to be communication um, that goes on, but even in the planning of the meal itself. And so, you know, we we sort of thought that perhaps for some families um, that experience lower levels of functioning, um, that they might have um, more difficulties planning the meal, making it happen, um, or perhaps the modeling that parents um, do during um, mealtime. So, you know, modeling the foods they eat, modeling healthful food behaviors. If um, parents and children are not, um, don't have a strong bond, perhaps that modeling isn't as um been, you know, beneficial or as effective as families who have um, a stronger emotional bond. Um, so that's, that's a little bit about that. So for example, um, one of the, the questions is, um, you know, we're able to, um, um, when we make plans, we're able to make things happen. Um, and then another question is um, members in our family are accepted for who they are. So it's it's fairly broad in terms of thinking about functioning. So as as I was reading about that and hearing you talk about that, I was I would be interested to know. I mean, are there any correlations between family functioning and kind of other socioeconomic factors? I mean, like are high functioning families likely to be higher income, or low functioning families are likely to be lower income? Like, are there any? Do we know anything there about the factors that maybe drive higher levels of family functioning? For sure. So we actually, um, I mean, from our data, we we don't see that um, because all of the participants were um, children of nurses from the nurses' health study. So in our study, um, everybody came from families with fairly similar income levels. Um, so we do see, um, you know, at the same income level, families from high and low functioning. Um, certainly, there are um, there are correlates um, that um, can influence functioning, um, but across the board, we do see families um, at all ends of the spectrum of socioeconomic status with both high and low functioning. So, um, it's not I wouldn't say that income is a, you know a proxy for family functioning or anything like that. Mm-hmm. And then, so in terms of uh, what you actually found. Um, with this study, and as you kind of indicated, you know, you're looking to see whether the benefits of these family meals kind of hold up, you know, regardless of family functioning. So, so what did you find in terms of um, high functioning families versus low functioning families, and kind of the impact of these family meals on the nu- on the nutrition of of youth and adolescents? So we we found that above and beyond, as you mentioned, above and beyond family functioning, that family meals do matter. So. We first looked at, does the association look different between high and low functioning families? Um, So we looked at effect modification and we found that um, the the effect of family meals on uh, youth dietary intake really looked very, very similar. There were no significant differences between those from high and low functioning families. So then we thought, okay, let's adjust for family functioning in our models. And again, um, we didn't see any change um, in our associations when we adjusted for family functioning. So really it didn't change our story. And so we, we see that um, for, for adolescents um, and young adults in both high and low functioning families, when we think about dietary intake, sitting down together um, really does make an impact. 
And so what, so I know you looked at a few things, for example, vegetable consumption, you know, sugary sweet and beverage consumption. Um, where did, where did you see the family meals having the most impact? Was it increased vegetable consumption, you know, decreased sugar sweet and beverage consumption? Where, where was the most impact seen? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Um, and I think, um, you know, the veg, the fruit and vegetable intake, um, was a big one. Um, and that's mostly because, um, we typically see rates or, you know, the amounts of fruits and vegetables eaten among this population really decline. And I think the, the other interesting thing is that we, um, we did um, look at fruit without juice serving. So we're looking at whole fruits and vegetables, which is an important point because a lot of studies um, combine juice um, in that um, when we think about sugar intakes and that type of thing. Um, so it, it was the fruits and vegetables that we did see the most um, impact on, which is great. Um, amongst the, the youth in our study, we actually didn't see a lot of sugar sweetened beverage. Um, so like soda consumption, fast food or takeout. Um, so our effect sizes were fairly small there, um, but we did see some decline. And I, I, one of the other things I noticed is that you, there were some differences in terms of um, male and female participants in terms of kind of their dietary intake. So what were some of those differences and do you have a sense of what, what, what might have driven those differences? Yeah. So, um, the, the, I guess the biggest difference was that, um, for male participants, um, frequent family dinners were significantly associated with, um, fewer sugar sweetened beverages. So again, those sodas, but not, um, for females, but again, the, the association actually looks fairly similar. Um, it could be that they're just consuming. Um, we do see, um, that males tend to drink uh, more of those beverages than females. So that could be driving that association. Um, and we do see slightly higher rates of, um, family meal participation among, um, the, the females. So that could also, um, be driving that a little bit as well. I thought it was interesting. There was a quote from uh, uh, one of your colleagues, Jess Haynes, who was talking about, you know, family meals don't need to be complicated. Like it can be pulling something out of the freezer, putting a bag salad in a bowl, keeping it simple. So, I mean, I think given that, I mean, what what do you think it is about family meals that make them so kind of influential in terms of improving dietary intake for, for kids in a family? You know, it's it's really a time for family members to kind of slow down. I think in our busy lives, it's it's hard to find that time. So if we're able to just take some time out of our day, sit down with others and connect, I think that can be really, really valuable. Um, you know, putting down the screens, turning off the TV, um, and just sitting down face to face with others, um, can be really beneficial. And I think that, you know, we, we do need to remember that it doesn't have to be a big, you know, full blown, I know American Thanksgiving just happened. It doesn't have to be a Thanksgiving style meal every night. That's just too much. And I think when we sort of let go of those expectations and know that just sitting down together, um, in itself makes a difference. Um, I think that can help families that, you know, make what's easy, pull stuff out of the freezer as just, um, said, throw a bag salad on like it, whether it comes from a bag or you chop it up yourself, you're getting the same nutritional benefits. And so I, I think one of the interesting points you, you make is that in the paper is that even though we, we, there, there is this kind of growing evidence of the benefits of, of family meals. There haven't been many kind of interventions designed to promote more family meals. So 
I guess given this this growing body of evidence, what what might an intervention look like aimed at getting families to sit down together and eat more often? Yeah, that's a great question. And, you know, I think it it is an interesting point that we have all this great research showing the benefits, but we really haven't done a good job of helping families out. We just keep saying it's great, it's great, it's great. But how do we actually sit down and make that time? Um, So I think that the big thing for interventions is that time piece that families are very, very busy. um, And to sit down for, you know, even 20, 30 minutes um, can be a challenge. And so one of the things I like to think about is how do we make it easier to to happen? And that, I think, includes getting um, the youth and the family involved so that it's not just one person night after night um, preparing everything while others, you know, sit and watch, watch TV or whatever. So many hands do make light work. So if we can get the adolescents, um, you know, helping prepare the meal, not only does it get on the table faster, but it also helps teach really important food skills that will serve um, those adolescents into their adult years. And we do with the family meal research, interestingly, see um, intergenerational associations. So um, youth that sit down for frequent family meals during their adolescence um, do so with their own children when they become parents. So it does have intergenerational um, implications. Is this something, I guess, where you could see like potentially schools getting involved, I don't know, doctors, hospitals to kind of, because as you said, like if making it kind of start more with teenagers, like are there opportunities there to kind of provide more, I guess, nutrition kind of cooking training to teenagers. So when they go home, they're able to kind of jump in the, jump in the kitchen and help out their families. Oh, for sure. I think that, you know, in the schools, we could see more um, home economics type courses, nutrition courses to teach those really valuable food skills. We overall um, in North America have seen a decline in food skills. And so when we think about preparing healthful meals, that's an important piece. But thinking even more broadly, as a society, we don't, um, we don't uh, make it easy either. Like if we think about we want our kids to be physically active, which is great. um, And of course has many, many benefits um, for long-term health. But um, extracurriculars are always during dinner time. So it's sort of, you know, which one do you, do you pick? Do you sit down together or do you put your child in the activity and then you're running through the drive through right? So it's hard to make it all happen. Um, and so I think as a society thinking through, you know, the timing of when it's a bigger, it's a bigger issue, but it's something that um, our environment really doesn't support. And, and, I, and I imagine that that time crunch is probably even harder for, I mean, if you're a family where both the mother and father work, or maybe one of the parents is working two jobs, I mean, I, I mean, is that, I guess, kind of a, ne- a next step here? Like, how do you find time for those family meals when people are, might be working multiple jobs just, just to make ends meet? Oh, for sure. And I think that's a really important piece and something that's a reality for many, many families. And I think a big point to that is to really highlight the research that shows that it doesn't have to be dinner time. So in our study, we did measure family dinners, so the evening meal, but the research um, looking at other meals during the day show that the the benefits from sitting down together at any time of day um, still hold. So breakfast counts. If both parents are working in the evenings and you can get even 15 minutes to sit down and check in before the start of the day with your children at breakfast time, that's great. Um, And I think the other thing is that 
we we need to be um, not so hard on ourselves. It, nobody like it's very difficult, I think, for families to sit down together seven nights a week. Um, a lot of the research does look at five meals a week um, for showing um, many benefits, but we do see that every meal counts. So even if you can sit down together one night a week and as it gets easier and as family members schedules change um, and make it um, perhaps uh, easier to sit down more often, add more meals in. But start where families are. I think it, we see it as an all or nothing thing and it, it, the research doesn't support that. Each meal you sit down together, the more benefits you get. You know, you, you mentioned a few minutes ago that this idea that the, the meals don't have to be complicated. You know, it can be a bag salad. It can be something frozen. It can be something simple. Um, kind of going back to that, that question about kind of maybe like lower income families or people working two jobs. Like what's the role of, you know, in the U.S. we have like SNAP as a safety net nutritional program. Like is there a role there for these kind of nutritional safety net programs to to take any steps there that can that they could provide? foods that are more conducive to a family kind of quickly getting together for 30 minutes on a weeknight or even a, even a quick breakfast but before school during the week. Yeah, for sure. I think it's really a sort of broader public health um, question of how do we how do we support families in, in making it easier? Um, I do think that having um, either act for sure access to healthful foods um, does make it um, does make the foods that you're serving during the meals um, more beneficial. But um, you know, even just um, families will when we th think about family meals, just sitting down together is great. So whether you're serving a pizza um, or not, you know, or you're serving um, some sort of gourmet salad, like your your children will reap many benefits from sitting down together. So I think. Um, the, Getting families to sit down together first, and then second, if we can start to, to add a salad in, um, add, you know, make the side yourselves, like slowly add some more um, homemade food in there as, as it allows. I think that that's good. But just sitting down together is great, too. Right. That idea of like carve out the time first to get everyone to the table. And then from there, you can think more critically about what you're serving. I argue that the research really does support that that bonding time is really beneficial. And we do see research showing that for families with lower levels of functioning, so families that, you know, find it challenging to communicate and may not um, have a strong emotional bond with each other, sitting down together or preparing a meal together can really help with that functioning and that communication. Um, because at very most, when you're sitting down together, you do have to ask for, you know, the ketchup to be passed. Um, but preparing a meal together gives everyone a role in the family as well and can help with that bonding. So we do see that the more you sit down together, the higher your functioning can be. That was actually going to be something I was going to ask was, you know, can these family dinners in, in some sense improve the, the, fam, the, the functioning of these lower functioning families? Because it's, it seems to be getting at a lot of the things that they may struggle with, such as communication or managing schedules or, or those kinds of things. And I, I do think that it is important to note um, um, in the findings of our study that, you know, we see both high and low functioning families sitting down together um, frequently. So when we think about interventions, it's not just uh, low functioning families that we need to target there. We have lots of um adolescents and young adults in our study that reported low or sorry, high levels of family functioning, but that they weren't sitting down together. So I think we need to sort of look at um, why families sit down together in the first place and 
target the interventions to the individual families. And so that leads well into my last question. I always kind of, I always like to ask people, you know, what would the next steps be? So is, you know, from your perspective, is it really making, maybe digging more in, doing a larger, longer study to kind of get at those factors that are driving why people might sit down for meals together or why they just aren't finding the time to do that? Yeah, for sure. I think that um, we we have a really good body of research looking at the barriers for family meals. So we know that. We know why it's hard to sit down for family meals, you know, time, feeding picky eaters, that type of thing. Um, but we really need to know, you know, why, so despite these barriers, why are the families that are sitting down together doing that? And why are the families that aren't beyond other barriers? Why aren't they sitting down together? Um, I think that's an important piece to creating some interventions, but then we really just need to dive in and start trying to support families. So testing interventions, what works, what doesn't, um, and really partnering with families that we're trying to support to make those interventions tailored because I think every family experiences their own barriers. So whether we have a toolbox of items, you know, whether we have healthful recipes and we have items to help with conversation for families that, you know, are a bit nervous sitting down together, um, for the first time, or whether we have, um, you know, tips on how to make, get the meal on the table faster, and then families can choose what benefits them most. Um, Those are just some ideas, but really, I think those are the next steps. We need to really understand why families do and don't beyond just, um, you know, time and, and feeding picky eaters and that type of thing. That was my conversation with Catherine Walton about her research on family meals. If you want to read the full paper and more about that research, we'll have a link on our website, hsph.me slash thisweekinhealth. And that's all for this week's episode. A reminder that you can always find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, or Stitcher.